The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Meryl Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I am so pleased that you decided to join us today. And I wanted to thank you for all of your emails. I love receiving them, and I love hearing from you. So please, keep them coming. So today's show is entitled, From Meltdowns to Behavioral Problems to Autism, Alternatives to Medications. Medication can be a difficult pill to swallow for many parents trying to make the best choice for their child. The research on the long-term impact of medications on growing children and adolescents actually is not very clear. We know that some medications have had negative effects on children, and yet some medications have saved the lives of children. For example, the impact of new medical treatments for children with certain types of leukemia has been incredible. So I'm a parent. I have a child that has some type of need. What am I supposed to do? Well, you need to carefully research all options and become familiar with all of those options and then discuss those options with a licensed physician that, number one, you trust And number two is open to discussion of alternatives. That's what we try to do on Caught Between Generations. I want you to be aware of as many options as possible. On this episode, we're going to be discussing alternative treatments for autism with a parent of an autistic child, and then behavioral alternatives with a behavioral pediatrician. We're going to begin with Jennifer Noonan, who's author of No Map to This Country. It's the story of her family's journey through autism. Journey, I'm sorry, Jennifer is the founder of a website. website. You know what? Actually, talking about this makes me very emotional. You can tell that, right? Suddenly, I just can't get my words out. I'm so sorry. But it was really such a moving book. And Jennifer's story, as you'll find out, is such a moving story. So Jennifer is the founder of a website for parents of autistic children. She holds two bachelor degrees from the University of Texas and lives in Austin with her husband and four children. Welcome to Caught Between Generations, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to get to be here today. Oh, great. So, Jennifer, you have four children. What, what are their ages? Well, my two stepchildren are almost 18 and 14, and then my two biological children are 10 and 8. So we have a good spread. And so, <laughs> and then which child has autism spectrum disorder? 
Well, the 10-year-old has autism. He was diagnosed first, and actually, not to give too much away, but sort of late in the book, it's revealed that my daughter, the 8-year-old, also has autism. And when, when, when did you, when was she diagnosed? How my old was she? Was di- I'm sorry? My, how, old my, was she, well, how old were both of them when they were diagnosed? My son was two and a half. And because we learned so much so quickly after he was diagnosed, we ended up realizing almost immediately that my daughter also was showing all the same symptoms. And she was diagnosed at 15 months, which is very, very early. But because of my son, we knew exactly what to look for. That is very, very early. So realizing that not every treatment works for everyone, I mean, Everyone responds somewhat differently to medications and to interventions. What were some of the treatments that did work for you? Well, I would say the most major knowledge that helped guide us was the awareness that it was fundamentally an autoimmune disorder with a very, very large role in the digestive tract, in the gut health. And so that sort of informed our choices as far as diet, which was a huge contributor to their success, uh, some general supplements and other things that would support their digestive health, things like probiotics, pretty much anything in the category of immune system support or digestive support was a major improvement for them. So, Jennifer, translate that for me. I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean um, vegan, vegetarian? I mean, what does that, you know, no carbs, what does that mean? Sure. Uh, Initially, we tried something called the gluten-free, casein-free diet, which means you eliminate all gluten and all casein, which is effectively dairy, from their diet. And that made an absolutely massive difference in my son. 48 hours off of dairy he looked right at me and said, this is a red spoon in regard to a toddler spoon he was holding. And he had never said anything even remotely like that before. That was just a huge eye-opener. Up until that point, we'd been just sort of trying it because it was a thing to try. And after that moment, we said, okay, this is real. Now we're going to actively pursue this. For my daughter, the GFCF diet didn't initially make a difference. And it's one of the reasons I understand parents who say to me, you know, I tried that and it didn't do anything. And for her, she was much more severe, as it turned out. And we ended up going further into something called the specific carbohydrate diet, which is still gluten-free and casein-free, but it is also free of all grains and all sugars. And so it's, you know, it's a very ancestral diet. You're eating a lot of meat and fruits and vegetables for the most part, and then some nuts and seeds, but no rice, no corn, no wheat. And that was enough to allow her digestive tract to heal. You know, they've done actual scopes with a gastroenterologist, and we've seen the before and after, and they're much, much better now. You know, it's interesting to me. It's, this is a discussion about food and its relationship to illness that I have frequently. Um, one of the reasons being is because my husband is a physician, but he's also diabetic, um, and he's a cardiologist. And he really strongly believes that there are certain illnesses that are actually what he calls foodborne illnesses. Um, and that food makes a critical difference. So often I'm talking to um, parents of young children, and we talk about no dairy or using other things like almond milk, and they 
really respond to that pretty negatively. And they're like, no, no, no. You know, the children need dairy. You know, they can't live without dairy. I mean, is that something that you come across frequently? Oh, goodness, yes. And I think it's, to be honest, completely ridiculous. You know, I, I think to, to be cynical, cynically blunt, there is a dairy lobby in this country that pays quite a lot of money to run ads and to convince uh, medical professionals that calcium is the most important vitamin and, and mineral. And it simply, it's important, but so is B12, so is vitamin A, so is vitamin C. And these are all things that are severely lacking from most children's diets. So they, I think they've sort of elevated calcium to far beyond what it uh, deserves. You know, and when I talk to parents who say, well, we have to have milk, I tell them there are entire continents where children don't drink milk at all, ever, and somehow they're all fine. You know, there are other sources of calcium, and there are other foods that are just as important as milk. I would agree. So when I was reading your book, I came across the approach called neurodiversity, which actually is not something I was familiar with before. So as I researched it and looked at it, um, the neurodiversity movement, of which there is some, I guess, movement within the autism um, community that that belongs to this or you know, participates in it. So as I understand it, and Jennifer, correct me if I'm wrong, the neurodiversity movement would frame autism as a natural human variation rather than a pathology or a disorder. I mean, what what's your opinion about that? Well, I mean, I, I understand that there's a certain need in people to sort of, you know, accept who they are and to feel good about themselves. And I think that we should accept who we are. But I think to me acceptance should only ever be the opposite of denial, never the opposite of hard work. And I think that, you know, it's very easy to turn that tendency into uh, a tendency to make excuses and to say, well, I can't do this because I'm autistic. And I simply don't believe that's true. I think that we need to always be striving to be better, every one of us. And I think that it's not reasonable to suggest that, you know, someone who is dependent on caregivers for the rest of their life or is completely nonverbal and unable to speak, I think that we should be able to categorically agree that that's a bad thing and that we should absolutely help those individuals. You know, I, I, I find it very difficult when people say, I'm bad at this and that's just how I am. I, I find that attitude very difficult. <laughs> I bet. So in the midst of all of this, you know, there are some parts of your book that are funny. I mean, you seem somehow to have found humor in the midst of everything you're dealing with on a daily basis. And humor is so important to everyone who is caregiving. I mean, how did you manage to, to find that humor? Well, I think that I've always had a bit of a dark sense of humor. I've, I've been told <laughs> that it's very dark. Um, but, you know, I think, like you said, I think that it's very important. I think that it's something that you need to be able to embrace because I think that if you can't embrace the humor in a sad situation, you're also never going to be able to embrace the tragedy behind every punchline. And I think that that's really critical as well. I think that real empathy comes from being able to embrace both at the same time and not try to shove them into separate corners. 
You know, it reminded me a little bit of the story Christopher Reeve told of uh, after he had his very, very serious accident and he was in the hospital in the wheel, in effect, upside down. And of all people, as it turns out, this is so ironic, Robin Williams uh, walked into his hospital room and started cracking jokes and being very funny. And Christopher Reeve tells the story of that was the turning point for him, that before that he thought, that's it, I'm done, my life is over, and um, I just, as soon as I'm out of this wheel, I'm going to kill myself, I'm done. As it turns out, it's so ironic with Robert Williams. But he, he talks about how that humor really, really helped him and, and helped him get through a very bad situation. So it's important. I, I absolutely really agree is. with you. I was a little nervous, you know, when I started writing this book, I kept trying to keep it serious. You know, I kept trying to say, you know, this is for a particular audience. They don't necessarily have the twisted sense of humor that I do. And it just, it felt so wrong and it didn't feel like my voice. And at some point I just said, you know, this isn't right. I need to just write this the way I am. And if people, you know, understand it, then they will appreciate the humor. And I I went back and put back in all of the little (laughs) side jokes that I had taken out originally. And it really, it it made it much more cathartic for me to be able to write how I actually felt. Right. And it makes it much more real. It does. We're going to take a break, but when we return, we're going to ask Jennifer about the reaction of siblings, the role of grandparents and friends, and we'll talk a little bit about schooling. So stay tuned. We have lots more coming. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, 
parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. To Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're talking to Jennifer Noonan about her family's journey with her son and her daughter, both of whom have autism. So, Jennifer, um, parents are very, very overwhelmed with handling children, period. But, you know, they're especially overwhelmed with handling an autistic child. So how do you respond to the reactions of siblings? That's really going to be a problem whenever you have a neurotypical sibling of an autistic child is they're not going to get as much attention as they necessarily would. But I think also you don't want to shield them from it too much because one of the things that's really a blessing when it comes to these sorts of things is your neurotypical children have the opportunity to learn compassion. And studies have shown, and my own experience has shown, that having an opportunity to be compassionate with someone in your home is really developmentally wonderful for them. It gives them a whole different outlook on life when they become adults. Do you find, though, that sometimes they're jealous, they get upset um, because of the amount of time that, you know, another child with special needs really takes? Oh, of course. I mean, that that's that's always going to happen. You know, you you have to make time to say, okay, you know, I'm going to take you by yourself out. We're going to get some respite care or we're going to do something that, you know, you want to do by yourself and just give them that extra time that they need without their sibling there. Because part of the real problem is not so much the parent's attention, but the fact that the autistic sibling will often uh, restrict what the family can do. You know, you can't go out to certain places because there's too much traffic or there's too much noise. And there are things that restrict the child uh, in activities that they normally would get to be able to do. So I think it's really important to find a way to still let them experience that uh, while also finding a way to make sure that you keep your autistic child safe, of course. That's a really good point. I mean, Another issue that I've seen in families is how do you handle, you know, the child who is not autistic, you know, having his friends over. Um, it's an issue I've run into with children that will say to me, well, you know, you know, my sibling with whatever the issue is, you know, you know, embarrasses me and I don't want to bring my friends over. or I don't want to be with my friends. I mean, what advice do you give your other children? You know, I think really what it comes down to is modeling for them what compassion looks like and helping them model for their friends what compassion looks like. You know, teach them the answer. So if their friends are feeling awkward, instead of letting your child also feel awkward, teach your child 
what to say in response to that. You know, say it's not his fault or, you know, he's just different than we are or, you know, give them an answer that they can give their friends. Because I find that in many cases, the neurotypical children, you know, embarrassment is only something that you feel because of how someone else feels or how you perceive. You can't be alone and be embarrassed. So really it's not a question of, changing what's going on, but changing how the people around you are feeling. So really, it's about turning it around and saying, well, why do you think he's behaving this way? And do you think he can help it? And what do you think we can do to help him not react in the you know disruptive way that he may be reacting? And I think when you give the children those tools to turn it back to their friends, they end up getting to be a role model. And I think that's a really strong position for your neurotypical child to get to be. Jennifer, you give really good advice. So while you're giving out good advice, what is your (laughs) advice? Well, you do. I mean, it's really very good. Um, So what is your advice for grandparents? Because I can imagine as a grandmother, you know, it, it, it might be difficult, and I, I don't know that I would ne- necessarily know how to be supportive to my adult children in this situation. Well, I think that it really boils down to there's, there's two types of grandparents. You know, one type is the type that sees the diagnosis before the parents do, you know, because they've raised children themselves and because they sort of have an idea of what to expect, and the, the, the children don't want to listen. You know, nobody ever really wants to hear that there's something wrong or difficult about their child. And in that case, you know, the best that the grandparents can do is, is help their children feel comfortable, understand that, you know, with autism in particular, it's not a death sentence. There are things that you can do and that waiting only hurts you in the end. Um, when you have a grandparent who's in a certain amount of denial, that can be a lot harder because it's very difficult to convince them that things are as difficult as they are, you know. And a lot of times it comes down to let them come over and really stay with the child for a lengthy period of time and let them see that, no, you can't spank this out of them or this isn't because mommy is letting them get away with everything. You know, that's something that you get not just from family members but from the general public is, well, your child is screaming because you're a poor disciplinarian. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, there's just nothing you can do about that. You just have to wait until the awareness gets better and hope that people become less ignorant. Um, But in the case of actual family members, you know, you can really show them things that you can't show people in public. You know, you just don't have the time to, where you can say, okay, I want you to come over and I want you to read to him for six hours and see if he magically learns to read. You know, come and see that I'm doing everything that you think I should be doing and I'm still not causing this. And I think that almost all grandparents, well, certainly all grandparents come around eventually because at some point you hit an age where you can't pretend that it's just bad parenting. Um, But I think also that denial reaction comes from the same place that parental denial comes from, is that it's sadness and it's grieving. And I think that if you can help them see that there is a humorous side, like we were talking about before, and that there is hope, you know, that that there are treatments. I think that the denial goes away a lot faster when people have options and when they understand that, you know, you can do dietary things, you can do things with certain vitamins and supplements that really can make a big, big difference. 
What do you say to to friends who I'm I'm sure have questions and have comments? I mean, I I will tell you that I have a friend, Frank Eccles, who lives in Texas. We spent many, many years um, working with children in actually residential treatment centers. And Frank carries a little card with him. It's almost like a little business card. And when he sees a parent doing something that he thinks is really great and fabulous, he gives them this card that says, congratulations, you know, you're a great parent. What a great job. He, you know, I mean, really, he goes to the country giving out these cards. So I was in an airport recently and saw a mother with obviously two children. It was obvious to me who were autistic. And I was watching her for a while. And I thought, my gosh, this woman is really unbelievable. She's handling these children very, very well in this crowded, you know, airport waiting in line to get on this plane. And and so I walked up to her and said, wow, you know, you're what a fabulous parent you are. You know, my hat is off to you. What a great job. And actually, I think she was ticked at me. Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure why and what happened, but I think she was. So, you know, my question to you is, you know, look, we shouldn't go around the country, you know, giving strange people cards, okay. perhaps. But, you know, <laughs> what, do you, what do you say to friends who make comments and have questions, whether positive or, or negative? Well, I think questions are always good. You know, I'll always answer questions. I, I, I think possibly the reason the woman in the airport may have gotten upset is one of the things you hear a lot when you have an autistic child is, you know, it's like, oh, I could never do what you do, or, you know, you're amazing, or, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle kind of themed comments. And I, I think that that is very tough to hear because often we're barely keeping our heads above water. And to hear that we make it look easy is can sometimes be interpreted as a dismissal of all the hard work that goes into it, you know, and the idea that we may look amazing on the outside, but on the inside, we're tearing our hair out, we're freaking out. And it, it, it can sometimes be difficult to take a compliment when you don't feel like you're doing everything you could, even though by outward appearances, you're doing more than anybody else would want to do. So I think, you know, the thing to do is acknowledge how tough it is, I think, and just say, you know, I understand what you're going through, and I just want you to know, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've got your back. You know, no one's staring at you, or I'll, <laughs> I'll tell them off if anybody does make a comment to you. You know, you're doing the best you can, and you shouldn't feel like anybody's staring at you. Um, and, and I think really that it's just a question of, like I said, acknowledging the difficulty rather than praising what they're going through. You know, it can be very difficult because there's a lot of misconceptions. One of the things that was said to me by more than one person when I, I said, oh, well, we have these children with autism, they said, oh, congratulations. And I was just blown away by that. I was like, no, this is an incredibly difficult thing that we're going through. We're really struggling on a day-to-day basis. And they said, oh, but that means that he'll be good at math, right? And I think that, (laughs) you know, sometimes you do see in public, you see the children really melting down and you say, okay, I, I see what this woman's going through. But a lot of times there really is this misconception of, you know, we have these television programs that are putting this kind of adorable, wacky spin on it, like Parenthood and the Big Bang Theory. And those are great for mm-hmm. entertainment, but they're not at all what it's really like. 
And I think that, you know, awareness helps, just understanding that right. it's, it's not easy and it's not some, you know, uh, uh, it's not something that everyone who has it is grateful for. And, and that's really Jennifer, what, what you have to look out you've for. You've been a great guest. You have just been a great guest. Very quickly, tell us your contact information. We have very little time left. Well, I have a, a website for the book that's uh, jenniferisacommonname.com <laughs> because I could never get my own name. And I have a recipe website, thegfcflady.com. That's great. And your book is No Map to This Country. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. We will be right back with Dr. Claudia Gold, author of The Silent Child. Um, we're going to talk about other alternatives to giving medications to children. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health and says everything is in working order, perhaps you aren't feeling at the top of your game. Dr. Rebecca Risk overcame pain and fatigue despite all tests to the contrary. Learn how she put her health back on track and how you can too on Falling Through the Cracks. Live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. This is Dr. Merrill, and I'm here with Dr. Claudia Gold who is the author of The Silent Child, From Labels, Medications, and Quick-Fix Solutions to Listening, Growth, and Lifelong Resilience. Dr. Gold is a behavioral pediatrician who specializes in early childhood mental health. She's on the faculty of the University of Massachusetts, Boston Infant Parent Mental Health Program, William James College, and the Austin Riggs Center. Welcome, Dr. Gold. Thank you for having me. 
So in the introduction to your uh, recent book, The Silent Child, you state the purpose of the book. And I found your words meaningful. And so I want to begin by sharing this with our listeners. I don't usually do this, but I really want to read this um, short part from your introduction. You wrote, the thesis of this book is that a culture of advice, quick fixes, parent training, and behavior management together with a rapidly escalating use of psychiatric labels and medications, may actually interfere in development. If parents are not supported in listening to what their child's behavior is communicating. And what touched me was the use of the word support the parent. I think so often parents, especially mothers, I hate to be gender prejudice about it, but it's true, are blamed and just vilified. Mm -hmm. And as you and I know, being a parent is very, very hard. And you seem to understand this so well. Um, You actually listen to the parents who seek your advice and your help. Um, And I think that's unusual. I think we don't always take the time um, to stop and listen. So the key concept of your work is listening. So what are the elements of, of really good listening? Well, I think I, I appreciate your reading that passage because I think what happened to me is I realized in my work that that was really what was helping people. And it was really pausing and being present with them. Um, people would come in with this tremendous urgency to know the answer and to know what to do and to be able to fix the problem and have this kind of certainty but when instead I offered them just my full presence, not my not, it's particularly important is to be non-judgmental, like you said. You know, it's really difficult to be a parent. So, like, I'm not here to blame you or find out what you did wrong, but I'm really curious about what your experience is. And then just giving them the opportunity to tell the whole story. And sometimes the story, you know, would even go back generations. And it would involve, you know, talking about what was their pregnancy like, what was the their relationships like, what was the child like as an infant, uh, what was going on in their life now, what, what was, how did the baby react to sounds, and, and what was their sensory experience like, and just taking the time for them to really just tell the story of who this individual child is. Um, and, when, and that would lead us to the, uh, how to help this, this, the particular problem they had come to see me with. But as a parent, if I want to really begin listening um, to my child more closely, I mean, how do I do that? I mean, I feel overwhelmed by time, and I feel all these time constraints. Okay, so I think the the first part, you know, I take the the last piece first, which is uh, taking care of ourselves as parents. So... You know, if you've come home from work and you've had a stressful day and all the people in your office have been, you know, at you and your child comes running up and is needing your attention, um, listening and being curious is really hard to come by. So, so taking measures to care for yourself. Like, uh, you know, I had a, a family where the mom would have her daughter sit on her lap and they would color together because the coloring activity was regulating for the parent. So something recognizing that you're in a situation where your child per- perhaps is provoking you and you're, or, you know, you're just particularly stressed in that moment and, and slowing your breathing and letting yourself calm down. Because when you're feeling agitated and provoked, really it's, it's impossible to listen. 
So that's number one, really, is managing your own, you know, taking care of yourself. So then, you know, then going back to the beginning of the list, I would say, is being curious. So you don't necessarily have to know the answer, but, but just having a kind of stance of rather than, you know, eliminating the behavior, like, why is my child having such a hard time getting out of the house today? Is there something going on? Is she missing me? Is it, did she not sleep well? Um, you know, what, what's going on that's leading to her? Just to be curious about it without necessarily knowing the answer. Um, another piece is, is empathy. It's like, it's not that you, you feel like your child's distress over, uh, you know, losing their sippy cup is, is the greatest disaster in the world, but you understand that from her perspective, it is a great disaster. Uh, it's just developmentally at a different level than you're experiencing the world. So, so being empathic to your child's experience. And then another key element, and I think this is one that people don't often grasp in this approach, is, is the idea of setting limits. Because it, it has, the, sometimes people get the impression that it's kind of an indulgent approach. But really, listening involves containing your child's big feelings. You know, so, so you can let them be really angry, but they can't hit and they can't slam the door. And, and you're okay with the intensity of their anger, but you're not okay with their hurting people so that, you, so that they feel safe with their very big feelings, that you, you don't feel freaked out by their anger and, and tell them not to be angry. But at the same time, you, you will not let them hurt themselves or somebody else. So there's really those four components, calming yourself, being curious, being empathic, and setting limits. You know, before we began the show, I was telling you that um, I had an experience last night, actually, where I was in a situation, I was listening um, to a conversation that really had to do with seniors with dementia and driving, and I suddenly found myself thinking about your book, um, because I think it has a lot of relevance, not only to dealing with children, but I think dealing even with seniors. So um, the question came to someone else about, you know, well, how do you deal with families who, you know, someone in the family, let's say the father has early stage dementia and really should not be driving anymore. And the answer was, well, you know, it's really difficult because, you know, very often families are in denial. So sometimes I'm saying, you know, you know, your father can't be driving anymore. And the daughter is saying, yeah, that's absolutely right. I would never let him drive my children. We can't trust him behind the wheel of a car anymore. And then this physician said, well, then I'll turn to the wife. And the wife is like, no, 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 things are not that bad. You know, he's really okay. I don't know what all the fuss is all about. And I thought to myself about your book as I heard that. And I thought, you know what? We really should be asking the wife at that time, what is the impact on your life and on you when your husband can't drive anymore? It was a completely different response than I had had before um, that I learned from reading your book. So it was, it was very interesting, that experience to me. That is so wonderful. Thank you for sharing that because that's exactly it. It does have wide-reaching effects because... When you're kind of at an impasse with someone saying, like, well, what about what they're saying makes sense? Like, let me listen to it from their perspective. Um, actually, I'm just rereading uh, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which I reference in the uh, beginning of the book and the idea that you never understand a person, another person until you walk around in their skin. 
And that's kind of what you're saying, like, well, what's going on for you? Rather than this is what you have to do. Um, you know, and that's, that's exactly what you're saying you, you thought to do with, with that uh, woman who clearly her life probably is completely upended by this situation. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, we'll just be able to begin before the break, the conversation about medications. Mm -hmm. So earlier in the show, as you know, we were talking to Jennifer Noonan, who has an autistic child, um, and they seemed to feel, she seemed to feel as though she had great success uh, with her son with and her daughter, actually, with changing the diet. I mean, are you against all medications for treatment of things like ADHD, autism, childhood depression? What's your feelings about that? I am not across the board against medication, and there are situations where it's really necessary and even life-saving where a person is not able to function. What I, In fact, the more I've talked about the book, the more I'm concerned about the, the diagnoses um, because what happens is people, you have this uh, kind of certainty, this is what's wrong with you, and medication is then uh, a, a piece of that. But that precludes listening because, you know, especially with young children, there's so much complexity to why they are behaving the way they are. And so if we just give them a checklist and say, okay, you have these behaviors and therefore this is wrong with you, we miss so much of what's going on in their lives um, and things that are helpful to us in terms of, of helping them. So, for example, uh, in, in any one child who has a diagnosis of ADHD, if we took the time to listen, we might find these whole range of things. One, we might find that they have sensory processing sensitivities that are contributing significantly to their difficulties. We might find that uh, the parents both as a cause and result of the child's problems, are having significant marital conflict, which creates an environment of stress. Uh, we might find, as I did with one family where the child was treated for years with medication, that she had a, the death of a child uh, right before his, his birth, and it had never been spoken of, and there was like this kind of unintegrated loss that pervaded the whole family. Um, you know, so things of, of great significance in a child's life that are reflected and communicated in their behavior. Um, in a more extreme example, there can be you know, domestic violence or even emotional neglect or abuse, and we don't know these things if we don't take the time, substance abuse, to, to really listen to the full story. Um, and, and I think when we, the, the thing, ADHD is the problems of attention and uh, distractibility and hyperactivity are very real, but ADHD is not a, you know, a specific biological entity the way, let's say, diabetes is. So it's a collection of behaviors, and if we just name them and then eliminate them, we don't listen to the full complexity of the child's story, and that can go on for years, and, all, and the child's experience is, is never appreciated, and that's often what leads to the fact that kids tend to get worse, actually, into adulthood. There have been studies showing that when we just medicate kids year after year, uh, the outcome is not really good, and they often have other problems, such as substance abuse, depression. Um, you know, that um, they're, they're not I, good outcomes. That's a very long answer I to your question. I with you, because they, they don't learn the skills that they really need to learn. You, well, you are listening that, to but talk it's between... Well, that we don't Dr. hear Gold, just Yes. Hold that thought. We'll be right back to it. 
Uh, we're going to break. We're talking to Dr. Gold, a behavioral pediatrician. When we return, we're going to let Dr. Gold continue her thought, and we're going to ask her about lifelong resilience and how do we acquire this. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. We're talking to Dr. Claudia Gold, author of The Silent Child. She is a behavioral pediatrician. So, Dr. Gold, before the break, you, you were, I'm sorry, you were in the middle of a sentence. Would you finish up your thought for us? Yes, I just wanted to say that it's not only that kids don't develop the skills because their symptoms are medicated away, but, but even more so as we don't have the opportunity to listen to the story of their lives and their families' lives. And those stories have a lot to tell us about how to help uh, kids and families. All right. Thank you for continuing that. that. That's a good point. One of your interests also is lifelong resilience. So what is that? Explain that to us. Well, um, many people think of resilience as something that just manifests in the face of some major life crisis, but actually a lot of research, particularly research of Edtronic and others, has shown that really resilience develops throughout uh, life starting in early infancy so that when we actually overcome the minor disruptions of life. So like, for an example, um, a, a, uh, a one-week-old baby who is breastfeeding and the parent has to interrupt the breastfeeding to go answer the doorbell and the baby screams, but then the, the mother comes back 
and speaks to the baby, and the baby learns to survive that disruption. And throughout life, life is full of disruptions that are, you know, a proportion to what our, we can handle developmentally. Um, and when we, in a relationship with someone who's, who's thoughtful and who's attuned with us, we survive those disruptions throughout development, the sort of day-to-day mismatch and repair of life. That's how we develop resilience. So the kind of connected, attuned, caregiving relationship. And I think that uh, the way this applies to the work is that when as clinicians we take time to listen to parents without feeling like we have to fix everything, they can connect with their own natural expertise and in a kind of parallel process they can contain their own anxiety and be present with their child as the child works through a challenging situation. And that's how we build resilience. So what is the role of grandparents in the silenced child? Well, (laughs) that's an interesting question because when I talk about the story, I think, um, you know, certainly one major theme of my work is that the story, as I said, I think in the answer to one of your earlier questions, is often multi-generational. So bringing the, the, the way the parent was parented into this telling of the story uh, not necessarily bringing the actual grandparent, but the the relationship with the grandparent into the story so we understand what's going on is very relevant. Um, so, I mean, and that can be in ways that are problematic and in ways that are helpful. So, um, for example, I work with a lot of dads who were disciplined through shaming, and they have a very hard time not being uh, explosively angry with their children, which they find very distressful, but once we can talk about what that was like for them to be disciplined by shaming, um, and they can kind of separate their own experience from, as a child, from their experience as a parent, they're they're often able to be more empathic with the next generation. So certainly grandparents in, in the story have a role to play. Now the actual grandparent, bringing the actual grandparent into the therapy, um, I think can be helpful if, if certainly if they're very involved, but it, we have to be really clear about roles because um, if your primary uh, relationship is, in, in my work, I think of my uh, patient as being the relationship between the child and the parent. So I have to just be very clear about that. And my, so that when you bring in other generations, it gets, can get complicated, but I, I think uh, it, it can work, and, and I have certainly had situations where the actual grandparent was in the, physically in the room with us. So let's get back to the issue of medications for a minute. I mean, as a therapist, I used to hate the month of August um, because I was treating young children, um, 3 to 12, and my phone would be ringing off the hook in August because I had teachers and I love teachers, and one of my sons is a teacher, but mm-hmm. the truth of the matter is I had teachers calling me like crazy about kids entering kindergarten and first grade who would demand that I put them on medication. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, yeah. I, I couldn't put them on medication, you know, if I wanted to. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there was just tremendous mm-hmm. pressure from the schools about just put them on a pill. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I do have a section in the book about the stresses in the school setting, um, and and I think I want to underline the, the that the fact that 
there are some major, major problems in our culture that are leading to the silencing of children, and I, I really feel that the book is kind of maybe a hard, pardon the pun, pill to swallow because we really need to change things. But that is the way the situation is now, is that teachers have classes with, you know, large numbers of kids, there's not an opportunity for moving around. It's only going to get worse when we have what is actually a good idea, but which is universal preschool, but if we have teachers who aren't supported in dealing with kids who have problems of emotional regulation um, and we don't have support for them, um, we are only going to see a, a worsening of the situation where, again, because they have to keep their classroom safe and they have to teach, um, and they have increasingly structured curricula, that there's a tremendous pressure on teachers. And I think that this is really a dangerous situation for children because there are convergence of factors in our culture that are leading us to just, as I say, silence these children by putting them on medication. And, you know, certainly changing the system in the school is one place we have to start. Dr. Gall, do you have any last thoughts for us? Um, well, one thing we didn't touch on, which is very near and dear to my heart, is the uh, needing to listen to babies and, and our culture needing to pay attention to supporting new moms and dads and kind of creating a culture of postpartum care, uh, parental leave, acknowledging that uh, it's hard to be a parent for, and that we need to really be more, um, you know, sort of normalize the chaos of the transition to parenthood and really uh, offer support from the beginning. Otherwise, when there's a problem, things get on the wrong path very early on, and, we, and that leads us to these uh, bigger problems later on. We've been talking to Dr. Claudia Gold. Dr. Gold, how do people get your books? How do we find out more information? Do you have a website? I do have a website, and it's ClaudiaMGoldMD.com, and it has information about this book and my first book, um, and as well as more general information. And the title of your first book is? Um, Keeping Your Child in Mind, Overcoming Defiance, Tantrums, and Other Everyday Behavior Problems by Seeing the World Great. Through Your Child's Eyes. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Gold. This is, I, I really um, enjoyed your book, and as I said, I think it has application not only to children, um, but I think it has application throughout the lifespan. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. So this is Dr. Merrill. My takeaway today, I actually have two points. Um, we have learned from both Jennifer and Dr. Gold the importance of asking the question. If you're not satisfied with the answer from a physician, a teacher, a therapist, whoever it is, it's your right to ask for more information, for better information. It's your right to question my second takeaway, my second thought, is to remind you about the importance of stories. Dr. Gold and Jennifer's books are filled with stories that allow us to enter someone else's world and to discuss issues on a more personal level. Stories, especially family stories, help us feel more connected. So in that moment when you're feeling a little stressed, remembering something funny that happened to you as a child, remembering an old family story is important.
You've been listening to Quote Between Generations. Remember to keep a smile on the hearts of those for whom you care and a smile on your face. I'm asking you to do just one small thing for yourself today. As Dr. Gold said, it's important to take care of yourself. I want to hear what you've done, so share it with me on Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Remember, do just one small thing for yourself today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.